just incredible to be a part of that trip. Took 60 Rock Point freshmen, sophomores down there, and uh, even one day the students have been so intentional about sharing the gospel. And I got to stand up and kind of share one more time and say, hey, if you want to pray this prayer to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you pray or let them through it? And I asked them, if you prayed that for the first time ever, raise your hand. We had over 40 children raise their hand. And then our students were able to kind of see and check it out and hang out with them and lead them to Christ. And so just incredible, incredible stuff. So we're, we're honored to share that with you guys. Glad you got a little five, ten minute taste of what our, you know, eight days on the ground was. So uh, with that, I want to kind of transition into the sermon today. Just want to start with a question just see uh, how many uh, adrenaline junkies we have out there. Anybody ever been uh, whitewater rafting? Just want to. All right, a little bit more crazy than the 915. They're a little bit more uptight, you know. So anyways, that's why they're there early. You guys are staying out late, sleeping in. But uh, I had never been whitewater rafting in such a, my entire life, right? My, my wife grew up in Alaska for a little bit. So about six years ago, she's like, I want to take you back to Alaska where I grew up. You know, I want you to kind of see it. And so we did this big family vacation, Jamie's side of the family got to Alaska and finally said, you know what, we're going to go white water rafting. I had never been in my life, and this is what they put me on. I brought a picture. <laughs> and uh, so that front row of the boat right there, I'm on the far right. That's my wife, Jamie, in the middle, and my father-in-law, Brian Sanders, uh, Jamie's dad, who, who's on the left-hand side there. And so they said, You've never been before. Let's go do this right here, okay? And then I brought some other shots, kind of a sequence of us going down. So here we are. We're about to go. Apparently, Jamie's been before. And uh, then the next picture is where we completely disappear underwater. <laughs> and we're just hoping. And uh, we come up. And then I'm, I'm back into the backstroke. Yeah, just like that. So that's what they took me on, right? And it's like 30. Three degrees or 32.1 degrees is the water. We have these super rubber spacesuits on. We got to like swim test. I'm like, okay, I'm kind of excited about this, but I'm a little nervous, you know. Like, they're like, well, it's great. We'll just start on a class five. I'm like, how many classes are there? Five. Whoa, okay. That's wonderful. Let's just start at the very beginning, you know, start the, the hardest one. That's great. Um, and so I said, well, how do, you, how do you determine the classes uh, of rapids? Is it like by how much water, you know, how fast it's going? Or what? No, we determine the classes by what happens to you if you fall out. What, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, you know, like class three, like you might take in a little water, you know, you're spraying an ankle, but you can swim out. Class four, oh, communion cup, sorry. Um, class four. <laughs> Uh, class four, what happens is uh, you may break something, have a little bit harder time, you have to kind of float down to the rapids or over. Well, what is class five? I want to know. That's what my family's put me on. And the guy's like, you know, like serious injury or death. You know, I'm like, what? That's what we're going to start on. Serious injury or death. Could you imagine riding your bike for the very first time? And if you fall off, those are the consequences. Serious injury or death. I don't know if my family loves me or hates me, right? And I don't know if my wife was trying to get rid of me. And so here we go in Alaska, 33 degree water, serious injury or death. Come on, right? And so I'm living it up and uh, hopping the boat and, and we're going and I'm just stroking, I'm pumping, right? And we get to the very first rapid where we're hitting that. And I'm out there, I'm stroking, and we hit some kind of like water and we the bump, and I feel myself start to fly out of the boat. Now, the reason Jamie was in the middle, her job was simply this, and I'm so thankful she's a rule follower, was to put her fingers in mine and her father's life jackets and just hold us. <laughs> that was her entire job, right? And so as I go and I'm falling out of the boat, next thing I know, I feel Jamie pull me in, right? And so I snap and I look over and I go, 
you saved me. You know, it's serious injury, you just saved me from that. And so I just like, we have a moment as we're like going down the class fives. And so I asked the guide, I'm like, how do I keep from falling out? He goes, just have better balance. I'm like, I don't know how to do that, right? So the rest of the time, every time we come to a rapid, I would just lean in and kind of paddle like this. I don't think my paddle was touching the water. A great experience, right? But when I think about that story, I think about, it's such a metaphor for life, isn't it? It's this idea that, man, when you are in the middle of the rapids, when the current is strong and the waves are coming over and you feel like you're about to fall out of the boat, the question is, who's got a hold of you? Who's got their fingers in your life vest? Who's pulling you? And can you trust their grip? I mean, the answer is God, right? For those who have put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus is God. But sometimes we go, God, can I really trust you? In the midst of what's going on, the, the risk that could come, like, do you have me? Do you truly have a hold of me? Do you really love me? I've been asking myself that question a ton this past year. When we found out we were pregnant with Sanders, about 18 weeks into it, we realized that she have a serious heart complication. And then when she was born, we had immediate life-saving intervention. She was only getting about 30% of oxygen. They just had to bag her to keep her alive. We hardly didn't get to touch her and see her before they rushed her off and finally got her stable. I've watched over the course of these past three, four months, right, we've just been in the hospital. She has to have, had to have a ventilator just shoved down her throat so she could breathe. She would gag on it constantly. I've seen her spit up hundreds of times. I've had to hold her down, hold her little hands down as they find another vein in which to stick and to draw blood. I had to sit there and hold her in my arms where they push the, the blood out of her heel so they can run these tests. We've sent her off to procedure after procedure not knowing if we would ever get her back. Right? We've watched people miscare for her and not properly care for her. We've seen her been overdosed. We've wondered time and time again as her life hangs in the balance. And I ask God, do you love me? Do you love her? Do, do you have us in your hand? Are you holding on to us? And can I trust your grip? Are you going to let go? Maybe you've asked that question too. Maybe you're in here today and you're asking that question, does God really love me? How can I be sure? How can I have complete confidence that he's got a hold of me and he's not going to let me go? That's what I want to answer today. I think it's so important, it's so imperative that you and I, we know the answer to that. Because there's coming a moment, or there's already been one in your life, where you will wonder, God, do you love me? Are you for me? Do you have me in your hand? And how strong is your grip? Can anything separate us? So when Paul writes his letters to the Romans, in the end of chapter 8, verse 31 through 39, he talks about this, and he gives us the answer. So grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. Now, adults, you guys have been in Romans for a while. Student ministry has been doing the same thing. So if you're a child in here, I just want to kind of catch you up, or all of us if we forgot, kind of the context of what leads us to Romans 8, 31 through 39. So Romans, the book of Romans, you can sum it up in one word, gospel. Romans is all about 
the good news that you and I in our sin were separated from God. We could do nothing to be perfect, nothing to earn that righteousness. We would spend eternity apart from God, but that yet he in his grace sent his son to die on the cross that we in our place that we might receive that new life, that salvation, that free gift by faith and trust in Jesus. That's the good news. That's what Romans is all about. And now the author of Romans is the Apostle Paul, right? Used to be Saul. He used to hate Jesus and hate Christianity. And he would take 100-mile journeys on foot, bust into people's homes, take them from their dinner table, and throw them into jail because they practiced and followed the way of Jesus. But he opens his book of Romans and says, Paul, I'm a bondservant. I'm a slave to Jesus. Talk about a life transformation from completely hating Jesus to saying, I owe all my allegiance and who I am. He is my master. This is the guy authoring the book. And what he starts out, chapters 1 through 3, is bad news, right? 1 through 3 is about how terrible you are, how terrible I am, how lost we are, how much we need the gospel. The gospel, he says, is the dunamis, where you get the word dynamite, is the only thing that has the power to save. And 1 through 3, he makes it plain and clear that we need salvation. It doesn't matter if you're a rule follower or a rule breaker, if you're religious or irreligious, if you're a Jew, a Greek, a Gentile, you all need Jesus. So he's just dogging on all of us in chapters 1 through 3, 5 through 8, he turns the corner. And he says, guess what? For those of you who are in Christ, who have put your faith, here's all the good stuff. It's like the complete opposite of 1 through 3. He's saying there is security, there is love. And now when we get to our verses... Chapter 8, 31 through 39, what he's doing, he's putting a bow on this section. He's concluding it. He's summarizing everything he's talked about in chapters 5 through 8. So as we read this together, keep that question in your back of your mind. How do I know that God really loves me? Can I be certain? Can I be sure? Can I be confident in his grip on my life? Let's read Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 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 no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers, no height, no depth, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Incredible verses, powerful verses, important verses. And the way Paul structures it, there's kind of two sections to this. The first deals with the, the judicial, the forensic, the, the legal side of our relationship. 
and then you swap over, and the last half is kind of like the, the, the love, the relationship part. And so the way Paul starts here is he's kind of concluding chapters 5 through 8. He asks these five rhetorical questions. Five questions that are completely unanswerable, that there's no one that can say anything to. The first question he asks is this, in verse 31, If God is for us, then who can be against us? And the word if there, Paul's not wondering. He's not curious, like, hmm, maybe God's for us, maybe he's not. The word, maybe a better translation of that is that since God is for us. Since God is for us. And who's the us he's talking about? He's talking about those who are in Christ, who've been, who's placed their faith and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In verses 29 through 30, just before, he's talking about the us, those who have been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. So since God is for us, who can oppose us? Who can stand against us? Right? Now, if you just ask the question, who opposes us, who stands against us, that's a ton of answers. When he says, since God is for us, no one, no one can oppose, no one can oppose. The second question he asks is this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He gave his son. There's nothing more meaningful, there's nothing more valuable, there's nothing more precious. That is the greatest gift that could be given and the greatest gift you could ever receive. I love my daughters. I would never, ever in a million years give them up for you. Right? It's, it's even hard for me when we were in the hospital, one of the things we have to do, she gets all her food and medicine through a tube that goes in her nose and down to her stomach. Before we left the hospital, both me and my wife had to put that down and practice it. Because if she pulls it out, she doesn't get her meds, she doesn't get her food, and so we have to know how to do that. And so in that moment, you know, you just kind of psych yourself up and the adrenaline happens and you just push it in and tape it off, then afterwards I just break down. Just in the first service, she pulled it out. My wife had to go home and put it back in. It brings us so much discomfort just to do something that helps save her life. I'm not giving her up for you. But Jesus did this for us. He handed his son over to be tortured, to be beat, to be crucified. So he did not spare his own son. Will he not also graciously give us all these other things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. There's nothing greater he could give. So, of course, you have the answer to, is he going to take care of me in the lesser things? It's a crude example, but imagine this, right? You go to Best Buy, and maybe you just got a bonus, or it's your birthday or whatever, and you're going you're gonna, to you know, love you some you, and you buy yourself a big old entertainment center, right? You get the speakers, and you get the biggest TV. It's 10 stories tall. It's 360 degrees. It's 10,000K. You spend a million dollars on it. You buy the most expensive package at AT&T, $10,000 a month. You have every channel that ever will be broadcast. You have it all. Are you not also going to buy the little cable to connect them? (laughs) Of course, right? And and that's what he's saying here. Jesus gave his son. Is he also not going to give you the little cable? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser, an unanswerable question. The third unanswerable question is this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So no prosecution could ever succeed. 
This is great news to me. Like, you bring me up on trial, you can find me guilty in a lot of things. But he's saying here, no, 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 no. When you're in Christ, no prosecution would ever succeed. No charges would be made. No evidence would be produced. It's all taken by Jesus. Nothing would stick. Someone makes an accusation, Jesus is like, no, they didn't. I got that. Someone brings a charge, no, they didn't. I got that. No one can accuse you. The fourth question is this. Who is to condemn It says Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, is at the right hand of God and who's interceding for us. See, no one can condemn those in Christ because they've been rescued through Christ's crucifixion, his resurrection, his uh, exaltation, his intercession. No one can accuse. Jesus alone has the power to condemn. And he's not condemning you. He's interceding for you. He's standing at the right hand of God saying, no, they didn't. I took care of that. Forgive them. That's what he's doing. He's interceding for us. And the fifth question is this, is who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he starts listing out these uh, adversaries, these things that could, could, could they loosen God's grip on us? Could they separate us? All these things Paul would experience himself. Tribulation distress, persecution. These are pressures and stresses caused by an ungodly and a hostile world. But he says they cannot separate those in Christ from God's love. He says, what about famine or nakedness? What about the, if I lack life's essentials, does that mean God has lost his grip of me that he doesn't love me? No. He said, even those don't separate you from the love of Christ. What about danger and sore? What about the risk What about even death itself? Can it separate me from the love of Christ? He says no. One commenter said this, wrote this. Far from weakening the bonds of love, trouble and hardship strengthen them. Persecution drives a true believer to the arms of the one who knows from experience the full range of suffering. Famine and nakedness are powerless to affect the love of Christ. Danger and sore lose their terror in view of the presence in the one we find ultimate safety. You know, what's so interesting about this is we know these things cannot separate us from the love of Christ. But there is a teaching out there that the love of Christ will separate us from these things. That if Christ really loves us, if he really got his hand on our life jacket, if he's really holding us in the boat, then we won't experience persecution or distress, danger or sore. Paul knows there's that false teaching out there, and so he addresses it with the next verse, which may be the most important verse. He says this, as it is written, he's quoting Psalm 44, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now we all know, right, the the, the way to raise a kid is to make life as easy as possible for them and to give them everything they want. That's the, that's the formula, right? That's what, no. Of course not, right? We understand that hardship and suffering has a place and a purpose, especially if God's got a hold of you. No matter what we go through, no matter what we experience in life, God can use it and redeem it for your good and his glory. Take Sanders, for instance. Someone asked me the other day, if you could undo it all, would you? I'm like, gosh, yes, in a million, as quick as I could. But here's what I know, that Sanders' life has brought God more glory 
than it ever could have had she been born healthy with a normal heart. So I would undo it in a second if I could, right? But God's using it and he's redeeming it. We know that the righteous can and will suffer. And Jesus made sure to let us know, John 16, in this world, you will face trouble. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. Think about Moses, Job, David, Peter, Paul, Jesus. Think about all the things they went through. Would any of you dare to say that God didn't love them? Right? We realize that God's love, it's not displayed, it's not administered to us through material possessions and ease of life. Right? If that's the way God said, I love you, was just to, to make you wealthy and happy, then Jesus would have been the most wealthiest, easygoing, no trouble life ever. But that's not it at all. God doesn't display his love for us through, through wealth and through comfort, right? He displays his love for us through his patience. You know, God, his, his, his long-suffering, his forbearing, the fact that you and I are here today, that we have another breath, is evidence of God's love. I mean, so many people, when we see things in the world that are going wrong, that are difficult, that are bad, and we should be heartbroken, and we almost cry out to God like, God, would you please just eradicate sin? Just stop it. Just get rid of it all right now. If God were to do that, what would happen to you? You'd be gone just as quick. And so the fact that God lets you live another day, he withholds his judgment, right, is his evidence of love. God shows us his love by his pursuit, his initiation. It is God who created. It is God who breathed life into man. It is God who revealed himself to creation. He didn't have to do that. It is God who gave the law, who gave the commandments. It is God who sent his son, who died on the cross, who raised. It is God who sent the Holy Spirit. It is God who's coming back to restore all things. Guess what you did in that? Nothing. God is the initiator and the pursuer of it all. You don't make your heart beat or stop beating. You don't make your neurons fire or your lungs breathe. God is the initiator in every part of that. Is evidence of his love for you. God shows his love for us, then he works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. God shows his love for you and that his son died. You, it was impossible for you to have a right, restored relationship with God. Impossible. You and I can't be perfect, but he made a way when he didn't have to. That's evidence of God's love, not ease of life or material possessions. Just because you experience hardship or heartbreak, it doesn't mean God has stopped loving you. It doesn't mean that his grip has loosened on you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So no, those things can't separate us from the love of God, and the love of God doesn't separate us from those adversaries. In fact, what it says in verse 37 is that we are conquerors, we are victorious, and we'll continue to be over every single one of those. And in verse 38, I love it, Paul, he says, I'm sure, I'm certain, I have no doubt, I have become and I will remain convinced that nothing will separate us. And then he just goes on a litany and starts listing things off, death. And life cannot be separated from the love of Christ. 
angels or demons cannot separate me. Things present or things to come, no amount of time, no matter what you have done or going through or will do, it cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Paul goes on, no powers, be them spiritual or earthly, governmental leaders, it can't separate you. No height, no depth, no place you can go. And he says, in case I missed anything, in case you're hard of learning, nothing in all the created order can ever separate you from the love of Christ. And so what can separate us? Nothing. Because Christ's love is not predicated on you and I and what we do. It's predicated on God's sovereign choice to love you. His grip will not loosen ever. Our confidence should never be in our love for him, but his love for us. One poet put it this way. They wrote, let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone I rejoice with awe, thy mighty grasp of me. Whether you lose a job, a spouse, a parent, a child, if you lose your way, nothing can separate you from the love of God. At the 9.15 hour, I had the privilege and the honor of baptizing Tatum Speck. I think we have a picture of her. And this is her story. She just came to church recently, and she told me, she was kind of writing this down. She said, I grew up with my birth parents. I live with them. She said, they're not associated with Christ. They're atheists. They never come to church. And said, my mom was so tough. My family life was so awful. She writes to me. She says, I've prayed to God every night for 14 years to get out of that house. How bad does it have to be for a child to pray every night to get out of this house? That's what she's experienced. And then she said, finally, through God's grace, I got out. My parents were given full custody of me. Grandparents were given full custody of me. I started to go to church with them off and on, but the year has really changed me. I understand the gospel better, and I listen. I take notes, and I talk to God more often. I do things based on what he would want. Tatum said, I've prayed for a better relationship with God, and it's happening, and I couldn't be happier. Listen to this. Tatum says, I decided to get baptized because God has always, always been there for me. Not once has he left my side, and I don't ever want to leave his. She's got 14 years of excuses to say that God doesn't love me. She's got 14 years of history to say he has no grip on me, but she doesn't. She understands the gospel. She understands Paul. She understands Romans. She understands that in those 14 years, God had her. And he's finally pulled her out. And so she was here this morning professing her faith in her Savior in multiple ways. Right? Incredible example of what it means to not be separated from the love of Christ. So you can't be separated. But here's the deal. You can reject it. You can stiff arm God, and you can stiff arm his love, and you can run from it. But guess what? That doesn't even negate his love for you. You can reject it, but, but why would you? Don't we all want that? Someone we know that no matter what we're going through, what's coming at us, that they've got a hold of us, that their grip is secure, that they'll never let go. 
Isn't that what we want? Someone who would sacrifice everything to bring us into a relationship, right? For those in Christ, that's what we have available. And so, man, I would invite you, if you've never done that, you would be like Tatum, and you would ask for forgiveness of your sins, put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior. So the way we're going to close today is Ron's going to come and pray, and we'll get to take communion together and just reflect on the body and the blood that was shed to show his love for us. And then we'll get to listen to an original song written right here at Rock Point Church that talks about these verses and how we cannot be separated from God's love. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are, for initiating, for pursuing, for loving us, Jesus. And I get it. There's probably people in this room who have walked through things a million times harder than I've ever experienced. And maybe at some point we all ask that question, God, are you there? Do you know? Do you care? Are you aware? Do you have us in your hand? Do you love us? Are you working things out? God, I pray in those moments when we're falling out of the boat, when the rapids seem to be taking us away, that that this scripture, that these verses would help pull us back in to know that nothing can separate us from your love. Now, we're not supposed to expect ease and, and, and material wealth and possessions, God, but your love was displayed in a more mighty and more powerful way through sacrifice. And that can't be lost. It can't be changed. It can't be undone, God. So give hope to those who are here. And for those who don't have hope, God, I pray that they would find it in you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. Amen. Thank you.